Good evening. It is so good to have you joining us online with one of our uh, live streams, whether it's on Facebook or on our website, or if you're watching this sometime in the future, maybe you couldn't catch it live. Hello from some unknown point in the future. I've always dreamed of time traveling, and this will probably be about as close as I get. Well, we have made it. We are in the final week, the final sermon of this series called Everyday Disciple Making. And so we're excited to be here. Love this study. It's been a blessing to me as I hope it has been to you as well. Last week, Tanner Ward filled in for me while we were out of town and he preached on the subject of the beliefs of a disciple. And he did a phenomenal job. I cannot wait to see what the Lord does through him and his ministry. And tonight, we are going to be talking about the behaviors of a disciple. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter one. We'll be looking at Romans chapter one at the first six verses there. Really, we're, we're gonna focus in, gonna zoom in on verse five there where Paul talks about the obedience of faith. What does that mean? Tanner dove into it last week. We'll talk about it a little more and then talk about the behaviors of a disciple. This, this phrase though, the obedience of faith, is a crucial phrase that we have to understand if we are going to really understand what it means to be disciples who make disciples. And these verses in Romans are the introduction to the letter, and which in ancient letters most often was left to formalities, but Paul was not one to waste time with formalities. And, and, and so uh, typically these, these things were stuff you could skim over without missing too much, but that's not the case here. Uh, Paul loved, uh, loved multitasking. That's what he's doing, something, something you might call multitasking. And so he is going to introduce the letter, but he is also going to teach some deep truth about the gospel at the same time. So let's read what he says, starting in verse one of the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So he starts out there in verse one and he's doing a decent job of keeping it short and, and, and sweet and introducing the letter, but it's, like, it's as if when he pins the words, the gospel of God, he just can't help himself. The whole book of Romans is going to be an extended discussion on of the gospel. For the next 16 chapters, Paul is going, his primary objective is to dive into the depths of the gospel, to explain the depths of this, this mystery of what God did to save us from our sins. Uh, but before uh, diving too deep, so he, he includes here in the, in, the, in, the, in the introduction, a bit of a trailer or a spoiler. So like he can't help himself. He has to talk about the gospel. Now in, uh, in my household, we, we love the Atlanta Braves, even though they break our hearts. 
Uh, this weekend could have been a glorious triumph for Georgia sports fans. Uh, the Braves could have been going to the World Series and the Bulldogs could have finally beaten Bama, but that's just not going to happen. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to refuse to get my hopes up. But, but we love watching Braves games. And when I miss a game, there's a feature uh, that, I that I've come to appreciate on our TV, and it's, it's the key plays features. You can watch the key plays of the game in about five minutes and, and, and don't have to watch the whole three hours. You get the basic idea of what happened. I even love to watch the key plays before I go back and watch the real game because there's something just exhilarating about knowing Freddie Freeman's about to hit a home run and just watching it happen. And so in, in this introduction, Paul is basically giving us the key plays version of Romans before he dives into the full thing. And since Romans is all about the gospel, the key plays version is simply a summary of the gospel. So last week, what Tanner covered was some, some key gospel truths with the beliefs of a disciple. That was all about core gospel truths, key truths that anchor the gospel. And if you remember, those key truths included the truth about the scriptures. It included the truth about who God is, the truth about who we as humans are, both our, our dignity at being made in the image of God and our fallenness. Includes the truth about, about Jesus, who he is. It includes tr the truth about what it means to be saved. And then also the truth about what's going to happen in the end when Jesus comes back. And if you look throughout the New Testament and all the different presentations of the gospel, they typically include most, if not all, of these core gospel elements of truth. Now, Paul doesn't include every last one of them here in the, the first six verses of Romans, but he includes several. If you notice in verse two, he says the gospel was communicated through what? Through the Holy Scriptures. So he's talking about the Bible there. Before that, though, even notice how he, he, talk, he refers to the gospel. He describes it as the gospel of God. And then there's a Trinitarian shape to these verses as he goes on to talk about the Son of God and the Spirit of God. So Paul touches there on the truth about who God is. And then, of course, he dives into the truth about who Jesus is. He gives us a beautiful summation of Jesus' nature, telling us about his fully human nature and that he was descended from David according to the flesh, and then also telling us about his divine nature, that he was declared to be the Son of God in power. And so then after diving into that key place version of the gospel, after touching on those truths in verse five, he transitions and tells us the implications of those gospel truths. Or in other words, what those gospel truths demand in our lives as those who believe them. He says, Jesus has now given us grace and apostleship. He's given us these special things to do what? in order that we might bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, where else have we heard that all the nations language? We heard it in, in the Great Commission in, in Matthew 28, where Jesus commands us, go therefore make disciples of all nations. So here in Romans 1, Paul is taking us back to the final command that Jesus left with his disciples, the command to, to make disciples. He's saying basically this, he's saying, guys, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, we have a mission to accomplish. And that mission is to make disciples of, of all nations. So the, goal, so the goal of that mission, the ultimate goal is the glory of Jesus for the sake of his name among all the nations. And the means 
the means by which Paul says we accomplish that goal is by bringing about the obedience of faith. So with that phrase, the obedience of faith, Paul is, is really giving us a synonym or another way to talk about making disciples. So we glorify Jesus by making disciples. We glorify Jesus by bringing about the obedience of faith. So to make a disciple is to help bring about the obedience of faith. So in order to really know how to make disciples, we've got to understand what this term means. And so Tanner did an excellent job explaining this. And the structure tonight is gonna be similar to what what we went through last week with him. So we're going to talk a little bit about these verses in Romans 1 and obedience of faith. And then whereas he discussed the beliefs of a disciple, we're going to then dive into some core behaviors of a disciple. And so there's some debate as to what obedience of faith means. And when you see the word of, it's something called the genitive case, which is no need to know that 10 cent word unless you're a grammar teacher. What is helpful to know though, is that there are several different ways to use the word of. So is, it can be possessive. You could say that Jack and John Luke, if you wanna be fancy, you could say they are the sons of Quentin, which simply means they're my sons. They're, it's, it's a possessive use of that, of that word. It can also be descriptive. You could say, I drive a car of chocolate which would be totally impractical and totally nonsense, but you'd be describing what your car is made of. So which is it here in Romans 1 verse 5? Is it the obedience that belongs to faith as in obedience that results from our faith in Jesus? Or is it obedience that you would describe as faithful as in faithful obedience where you are faithfully, devotedly obeying Christ's commands. And the best I can figure here is, is that Paul has both in mind. It's, it's both. That, that our goal is to raise up people among all the nations who are devoted to Jesus, who faithfully obey his commands as disciples, and that our goal is to raise up people among all the nations who obey the commands of Jesus in response to, as a result of, their faith in the gospel. And so here we see the critical importance of sound doctrine. In Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, some of his young pastor protégés, Paul constantly urges them to be devoted to teaching sound doctrine because he understands how faith and obedience work together. He knows, he knows the Great Commission. He knows that Jesus commands us to make disciples by, by teaching people to observe or obey all that he had commanded. And so as we've said several times in the series, the simplest definition of a disciple is that to be a disciple is to obey the commands of Jesus. But, but Paul understands just as Jesus understands that the sort of obedience he's calling for isn't something that we can just muster up on our own. It's to rightly and truly obey the commands of Jesus is utterly impossible for you and me. If you don't believe me, try this command on for size. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. So even if you thought you were batting a thousand on every other commandment in the Bible, which you weren't, uh, this command to be perfect would remove any illusions of your ability to perfectly obey the commands of Jesus on your own. So no, the obedience that Jesus calls for 
in the Great Commission is the obedience of faith. It's this, this special type of obedience that is a response to or the result of uh, our faith in the gospel. The gospel empowers our obedience. Faith in the gospel is what activates faithful obedience or the obedience of faith. So we need to understand what, what type of faith is it? What, 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 what is this faith that is connected to our obedience? What is it like? And the Bible describes true faith, true Christian faith in two primary ways, or it's having two main elements. So faith that produces obedience is a matter of truth and of trust. So trust that's about the attitude or, or the disposition of our hearts. And what kind of attitude do we approach Jesus with? Do, do, do we have a, a prideful, self-reliant heart that, that thinks, I don't need God, I, I don't need Jesus? Or do you have a humble heart? Is the disposition, the attitude of your heart one of humility? Because that prideful heart, it's actually a dishonest heart because it's a lie to think that we don't need God. That's just not the case. But we are masters at fooling ourselves when it comes to our opinions of ourselves, aren't we? A humble heart is an honest heart because it reflects an accurate understanding of who we are before God. The truth is we, none of us have anything to brag about in front of God. Isaiah 64 says that all of our righteous deeds or all of our attempts at doing good things before God are as filthy rags. In other words, he's basically saying that our best attempts at being good are as good as a dirty diaper before God. And so, so, so now don't misunderstand though what I'm, what I'm saying. Be sure though, as we are striving for a humble heart, that we don't confuse a humble heart with a self-hating heart though. Because, because Satan is tricky and he will try even to turn a humble heart against you. A humble heart's a good thing. But when, but when you acknowledge the truth that you have nothing to present before God, which we need to do, what Satan tries to do is he whisper, whispers to you and he says, yeah, that's right. You're worthless. You're no good. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Don't, don't you hate yourself? Don't you just hate yourself? And so, so, so while striving for a humble heart, that good humble heart, be on guard against the lies of Satan because God does not want you to have a self-hating heart. Because your attempts to love your neighbor as yourself, which is pretty high on the list of Jesus' commands, it won't go very far if you treat yourself terribly. I mean, frankly, I don't want you loving me as you love yourself if your idea of loving yourself is constantly beating yourself up with negative thoughts and negative words. Oh. But God does want us to have a humble heart because that allows us to have the right disposition, the right attitude toward Jesus, which is an attitude of total dependence, total trust in Jesus. And you want to see a good example of complete dependence or total reliance, and just look at a newborn baby. I mean, they need their parents for everything. And if they sense a need, they don't hesitate to cry out. 
That is how our faith in Jesus should work. In response to the truth of the gospel, we understand, we hear these truths about who we are and who God is, and we understand that we need Jesus for everything. And in every moment of every day, the knee-jerk reaction to when we feel, feel the rub of the brokenness and the bro- brokenness of the world and of ourselves, our knee-jerk reaction in our hearts should be to cry out to Jesus to abide in him, to stay close to him. And that's what Paul is getting at when he gives that command about praying without ceasing. It's really, it's not about being a super holy person. Praying without ceasing is about knowing you need Jesus a whole lot. So if we have the, the right kind of faith, our whole lives should show that we trust Jesus with everything we are. On the other hand, truth is about the things we believe or the propositional truths of the gospel. And I know that's a five syllable word and words that long should be banned after 5 p.m. every day, but just hang with me because it's a good word. A propositional truth statement is when you make a declaration about the way things are. That sign is red, the sky is blue, the carpet is green. Those are propositional statements. They are statements about how things are in the world. And so if you say, no, the carpet is pink, that's not just, that's not the way it works. I'd be right, you'd be wrong, or you're colorblind. And in that case, the problem is that your perception of reality is flawed. So the message of the gospel as a whole is a propositional statement. It's a statement about the way things are. And, and if you break it down, it includes a, a bunch of propositional statements, a bunch of truth statements about God, humans, Jesus, salvation, and so forth. And so having faith in the gospel, having faith in Jesus, while it is about a personal relationship with Jesus, it is also about believing certain things to be true. Both elements of faith are crucial, both truth and trust, a merely intellectual or propositional faith is not enough to save you. Jesus' little brother, James, in James 2.19 says this, he says, you say that you have faith because you believe that God is one. Even the demons believe that and they tremble, they shudder at the thought of it. In other words, he's saying, don't pat yourself on your back for your faith. The demons, they have right theology. (laughs) They have, they have that much faith. They have that part of it. They understand the truth of it. They understand the truths, but they have not responded the right way to those truths. They have not surrendered to those truths. They do not trust in Jesus. They're missing the other element, the right disposition. And so we have to be on guard, church, against having a demon-like faith. Because it is dangerously easy to slip into the sort of faith where you believe all the right things but they don't stir your heart and they don't don't move you to obedience. They don't drive you to repentance and submission and trust in Jesus. So let's be on guard against that that false partial kind of half faith. And so we have to have both elements of faith for it to work. We have to have the right truth and a genuine trust. If faith were a coin, trust and truth would be its two sides. Have you ever tried to saw a quarter in half? I don't mean flat ways, I mean down the, down the side of it. I, I don't imagine it would be too easy. Maybe you could accomplish it with a laser saw or something. But if you succeeded, the quarter would become worthless. If you separated its two halves, as would your faith, if you toss aside either of these two crucial elements. 
Without the right faith, without that kind of faith, this is so important because without that kind of faith, the obedience Jesus is looking for simply will not happen. It won't happen. Um, a few years back, I was at a point in my, my growth and development as a pastor and minister where I, I just kind of felt overwhelmed. I was like, there's so many moving parts to the church and ministry. And, and I really felt the need to hammer out a single guiding principle that would help me help guide the decisions I made and the way that I led whatever God entrusted to me. And with my personality, I can't stand to waste time or resources or, or, or effort. It drives me crazy. With whatever God entrusts to me, I want to make sure that, that I'm able to keep every aspect of that ministry in line with God's purposes and God's methods. And so after searching the scriptures and praying, here's, here's the guiding principle that I settled on that really guides every decision I want to make as a leader. And it's this, it's that lives change when people hear the gospel from the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's break that down. So life change is our goal. Like what we're stri striving after, what equals success for us as the people of God is, is the transformation of lives by the gospel. God wants the gospel to change people's lives, period. That's what he's all about. And the way that happens the method God has given us is through the proclamation of the gospel. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel is God's power for transformation. And then where do you find the gospel? Well, you find it in the word of God. You don't find the gospel by looking at the trees, although we can learn a lot about God in creation, but we don't get the gospel we don't find the gospel except by looking at the word of God. So the Bible as a whole is simply the gospel unabridged. So yes, you can share the essence of the gospel. You can share the gospel in a matter of a few seconds. And you can do it like this. Jesus lived the life I could not live. He died the death I deserved to die. And he rose again to give me new life. There it is. That's, you've shared the gospel. But in a more expansive way, the Bible as a whole tells the whole story of the gospel from beginning to end. And Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing from where? From the word of God. And finally, the power of the spirit. We have to stay aware that our proclamation of the gospel and our exposition of, and study of the word, they fall flat. Our efforts fall flat unless the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts and lives. The, the Holy Spirit, he is the, the person of the Trinity who applies the benefits of Jesus' work, the benefits of salvation and who brings them to bear on our lives. And so we have to bathe everything we do in prayer lest we try to go about doing God's work without God's power, which is never a good idea and will always result in failure. So as a guiding principle, this statement tells me that everything we do has to be viewed as a vehicle for getting the gospel from the word of God and the power of the spirit into people's lives. So whether we're preaching, that's an obvious one, or whether we're leading a life group, a Bible study or a women's Bible study or a men's Bible study, whether we're singing worship songs or leading kids ministries or doing trunk or treat or, or, or any other kind of outreach in the community, whatever it is, whatever the details of it, 
Its, its ultimate purpose, it, it's, it's really its ultimate nature is, is similar to that of a gift box. <laughs> it, it's the container. The method we're using is, is, is the container by which we deliver the goods. I mean, even preaching, <laughs> even the most engaging, well-prepared, entertaining message is like an empty gift box if that sermon does not deliver the gospel from the word of God and the power of the spirit. It simply will not possess the power needed to really change people's lives. So this is why sound doctrine, that principle is really why sound doctrine is so crucial because sound doctrine is about staying aware of God's truth and staying in contact with God's power. It's a sound doctrine. It's about staying committed to those core gospel truths. We have to stay as disciples of Jesus. We have to stay aware of these core gospel truths uh, because believing those truths in one sense is what makes us disciples. These shared beliefs, these shared convictions is what identifies us as a, as a group of people as separated from other groups of people. But in a deeper sense, though believing these truths is what makes us disciples in a deeper way because these, these gospel truths, the gospel is the power of God, as it said in Romans 1.16. So when you encounter the gospel as a result of hearing or reading the Bible or hearing a song that sings the truth of the word or hearing a gospel presentation that is rooted in the scriptures, you are coming into contact with the power of God. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. The, the power that enabled God to speak galaxies into existence is available for us to experience as we engage with the gospel. If we truly believe Romans 1.16, that's what it's saying. Believing the gospel is what transforms us into disciples of Jesus, into new creations. So, so we cannot compromise even a single nanometer on any of the core beliefs of a disciple, the core truths of the gospel, because when we do, we lose the power of God. So to sum up where we've been so far, the right kind of faith, the kind of faith that, that we have to have in order to bring about the, the obedience Jesus is after with the Great Commission, it, it involves truth and it involves trust. And having the right kind of faith is crucial because we won't be able to obey the way Jesus intends. And so we have to strive. What we're striving for as disciples of Jesus is the obedience of faith. We're striving for that in our lives. And then when we turn around to make disciples of other people, that's what we're striving to bring about in other people's lives. To make disciples is to bring about the obedience of faith in other people. And so as a result, we make disciples by helping people to take hold of gospel beliefs and to walk in gospel behaviors. So you can see there in that statement, the, the beliefs part aligns with the faith and the behaviors part aligns with the obedience. So obedience of faith and we're making disciples by, by helping people get a firmer grip on the beliefs of a disciple and get a firm grip on the behaviors, on how to walk in the behaviors of a disciple. And 
And, and at this point, I, I, on the screen, I could have written, you know, beliefs of a disciple or behaviors of a disciple, but I didn't because I want us to understand that everything we do in making disciples is gospel-centered. Because it'd be really easy just to make it just about believing the right things or just about doing the right things and lose the heart of it all. If we don't keep reminded, don't keep ourselves mindful of the fact that the gospel is the only thing that has the power to actually transform people. So in our front yard, I've shared a little bit in previous sermons about my battles with our front yard and that oak tree is dropping leaves and it's about to kill me. Uh, but there, in one side of our front yard, there was this crepe myrtle tree that never bloomed. In the years that we've been in our house, it never bloomed. So what did I do? I cut it down, poisoned the roots, and dug it up. Well, a few weeks later, <laughs> I would go out to my yard, and all around where that tree used to be, there are little baby crepe myrtle trees popping up. Uh, apparently, the root system was still alive and was bigger than what I thought. And so the way that a, a root system like that works, it, it gives a, a good picture of how the gospel is what f- fuels all of our behaviors as Christians. The gospel is like that root system. It, it forms the foundation for everything we do. It is what allows the behaviors of a disciple to, to sprout up in our lives. And so as Tanner covered the primary beliefs last week, and we're, now we're about to dive in to those primary uh, gospel behaviors because we, we need a practical framework. We need a practical framework. So that's how we make disciples, by, by doing those two things, by helping people take hold of gospel beliefs. And, but, but what are those behaviors? What are those behaviors that we are supposed to help people walk in? We have to know directions. Uh, a few days ago, we were visiting family in Georgia and we had bought some model rockets to shoot. I thought Jack would love it. He did. He went crazy. It was fun. Well, we were getting ready to go and I opened up the box. I thought it would be assembled already. No, that thing was in a million pieces. It involved plastic, cement, spray paint, sandpaper, and an exacto knife. You talk about an ordeal. Two hours later, we were finally shooting rockets. But I had a panic moment because when I opened it up, at first I didn't see the instructions. I was thinking, what do they expect me to do? And honestly, I feel like that's the way a lot of disciples, a lot of Christians feel when we, we say, go make disciples, go make disciples. So my hope is that in the next few moments, combined with what you learned last week, you're going to have a framework that you'll know when you're trying to make a disciple of your kids or maybe a coworker or your grandkids, that you'll know, okay, I need to help them take hold of these beliefs and, and I need to walk beside them and help them walk faithfully in these behaviors. Now, I could list every single command in the Bible uh, because like we've talked about before, the commands of Jesus, ultimately speaking, include all the commands of the Bible. But I won't do that. We'd be here a long, long time. I won't even list all the commands in the New Testament because we, we would still be here a long, long time. My goal is to just to give you some primary fundamental commands of Jesus straight out of his mouth. Things that we do read in the Gospels that come from his mouth as commands and, and so that we know where to start and what to do. Um, now, uh, we have to understand what do I mean by fundamental commands? 
Uh, Vince Lombardi, to give an illustration of that, Vince Lombardi, the, the legendary Green Bay Packers football coach after whom the Super Bowl trophy is named, every preseason on day one, he would hold up a football and say, gentlemen, this is a football. And then what they would do is they would start those preseason practices by teaching the basic fundamentals of the game, proper tackling, how to get into a good three-point stance, things you would teach eight-year-old peewee football players. I mean, things that you would think are unnecessary to teach professional athletes, but Lombardi knew that you never graduate from the fundamentals of the game. In the same way, these commands are the fundamentals of a disciple's life. It's not as if you ever graduate from them. And if you ever get away from these, you're going to find yourself off the path and living a fruitless, frustrating life. And so here are 11 fundamental commands, 11 behaviors of a disciple, and no rhyme or reason for the number of 11. Some, some books go with eight core commands of Jesus, others 10, others seven. And either way, I'm just trying to, to point us to some core commands of what Jesus says it means to obey him. So to begin with, the first behavior is that disciples repent and believe the gospel. In Mark 1, 14 to 15, it sums up the message that Jesus preached throughout Galilee like this. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So this is the very first command that someone obeys as a disciple of Jesus. It's what we obey. We obey this command in order to become a disciple of Jesus. So while we only get saved one time, that initial, with that initial act of repentance and faith, this behavior of repentance and belief is something that we do continue to do. We daily need to confess our sins, repent from those sins, and turn away from them and, and, and walk into a deeper trust in Jesus. And so it's not as if, again, it's not as if we get saved again, but we do need to continually practice and walk in repentance and deepening faith. Behavior two, disciples are baptized. Now, this one is not something you repeat over and over again. And so the caveat there, it's fundamental in the sense that it's a first step, but it's not fundamental in, in that we have to do it over and over again. If you've been baptized as a believer, then you're good. Now, we do not believe in, in infant baptism because the Bible just simply does not support that. The way the Bible paints the picture is that baptism is after faith. It's the first step of obedience after you repent and believe and that it's by immersion because it is a symbol of going into the grave with Jesus and rising up again. And this command from Jesus comes straight from the Great Commission. He says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations and baptizing them. And then Peter, whenever he preached the sermon at Pentecost, people heard the gospel and said, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized. So now the next behavior, we're going to be going fast here. It's rapid fire. I'm sure, rapid fire. I'm sure when you heard 11 points, you were thinking, oh no, we're going to be here a long time. But it's going to be quick. So next, disciples love God with all their being. Matthew 22, Jesus is asked the greatest commandment. He says, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the greatest commandment. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, love is it's not a behavior. It's, it's an emotion. What do you mean? And if you're thinking that, then you are wrong. I mean, yes, emotions are important because God created them. And you may feel strong emotions towards someone or something you love. 
But in the words of everybody's favorite 90s Christian music group, DC Talk, love is a verb. With this greatest commandment, Jesus is telling us to love God with our entire lives, everything we think, feel, say, and do. So in that sense, love is a behavior, it's a command. Behavior number four, disciples love one another, or love other people. Matthew 22, Jesus gives uh, the person who asked that question about the greatest commandment, a buy one, get one free, and tells them the second greatest commandment as well, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And so this command is closely related to the first because people are made in God's image. I mean, first John, he argues that if you can't love your brother whom you see with your eyes, how can you say that you love God who you can't see? Loving other people, this command includes love for other Christians. We talked about this at length a few weeks back in John 15, uh, love one another. It could be a whole command in and of itself. And more than that though, this command to love other people also includes a command to love your enemies, which Jesus gives us in Matthew 5. This kind of love that we are called to do, this command is an intense one. And these, these first two behaviors, these first two commands are really like an umbrella under which all the other ones fit. The 10 commandments are structured in a love God, love people split. The first four are about loving God. The, first, the last six are about loving people. Behavior number five, disciples abide in Jesus. Jesus commands this in John 15. Again, we had a whole sermon on this. Abiding in Jesus is simply a matter of staying vitally connected to him. And it's closely related to loving him with all of our hearts and all that we are. And we primarily abide in Jesus through prayer and through the word, which leads to behavior number six, disciples pray kingdom prayers. And Jesus commands this in Matthew 6 with the Lord's Prayer. He talks about prayer at different points as well. But in Matthew 6, he gives some really specific instructions. He, he literally gives the command, pray like this. And so as disciples, we need to obey that command so that our prayers align with his kingdom motives and his kingdom desires. So then also related to abiding in Jesus is behavior seven. Disciples search the scriptures. In John 5, 39, Jesus rebukes some people for searching the scriptures in the wrong way. He tells the Jewish leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. And then Jesus gives a positive example on how to search the scriptures in Luke 24 with the two disciples on the Emmaus road. He, road. he talks with them and it says, and in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This is a beautiful picture here. This is literally an account of Jesus discipling these two men by teaching them how to rightly study the whole Bible. That is with a gospel lens in light of everything that Jesus has done. And so we need to search the scriptures diligently, but we also need to do it correctly. So one of the ways that we, we try to disciple our kids in, in, in regard to this command is with a, a book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a storybook telling of major biblical stories with a Christ-centered focus. So my prayer is that it teaches our boys to rightly search the scriptures, to rightly study the scriptures. 
Now, on a personal level, a good study Bible is priceless on this point for how to rightly study the Scriptures. And if you don't have a good study Bible, order one tonight. If you don't know which one to order, send me an email, and I'll give you several good options that will teach you how to rightly interpret the Scriptures because we need to obey Jesus in this way. Behavior eight now. Disciples remember Jesus' death through the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, 19 through 20, Jesus breaks bread and passes the cup and gives this command. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, we see Paul continuing this practice, a disciple of Jesus obeying this command of Jesus. And he's discipling the Corinthians and how to do this. He gives instructions for how to do the Lord's Supper. And then he says, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, and just to be honest, we, we are often guilty of downplaying the importance and the significance of the Lord's Supper. I wish we had another hour just to dive into the significance of this and what it means. But, but for, now, for tonight, just, just know that the Lord's Supper is a precious gift from Jesus designed to help us stay clean from our sins and designed to help unify us as a church. So we need to diligently obey this command as disciples of Jesus. Now, behavior nine, disciples give generously. This comes from Acts chapter 20, verse 35. And you may be thinking, wait, 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 that's not from the gospel. So Jesus didn't say it. Well, let's read what Paul says. He's talking to the Ephesian elders here. And, in all, and he says this, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So yes, Jesus said it. We can trust Paul. And Jesus taught on being generous on multiple occasions. I mean, you look at Luke 6 and different places. And then we see the disciples all throughout the New Testament obeying this command. From Acts 2, where the disciples are selling their goods, I mean, the family land and things, selling them off so that they can be generous to help others who don't have. And then all the way to Philippians 4, where, where we read how the Philippians were giving sacrificially so that Paul would be funded in his mission to take the gospel to the ends of the world. And so as disciples, we have to obey this command to give generously. Behavior 10, disciples bear witness for Jesus. Once again, we spent a whole sermon on this from John 15, so I won't belabor it, but just he, Jesus says it again in Acts 1.8, the account where he's with the disciples, and he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. We have this command of Jesus. So as disciples, we are commanded to share the gospel with the lost. And yes, this is something that even the newest of believers can and should do. If you know enough about the gospel to be saved, then you know enough about the gospel to share it with somebody else so they can be saved. So then finally, behavior 11, ultimately, disciples make disciples. This command is given with all the authority in the universe and he gives it in Matthew 28. And, and, and so also with this command, make disciples, along with that, he gives the method. So bearing witness there, as we talked about in the last behavior, is part of it as we baptize new believers. 
But it goes beyond that to teaching people how to obey his commands. So now that we're, we're all through all 11 of those commands, what do we do with that? How do we take this into our lives and actually make disciples in our everyday lives? So how should our lives look differently as a result of this sermon and of this whole series? Well, as I, I told you on, on week one, my goal in this series has been to simply equip you to be disciples who make disciples every single day. <laughs> so week one, we talked about how disciple making is our core task. Weeks two, three, and four, we talked about the, the big picture of how Jesus describes the top three priorities of, life, priorities of our lives. And over the past two weeks, we've worked to give you a practical framework for, for how to help people make disciples. And so remember that point that I wanted you to hold on to earlier. Here it is. We'll put it back up there. That we make disciples by helping people. We make disciples by helping people take hold of gospel beliefs and to walk in gospel behaviors. Isn't that a, a beautiful picture of just understanding disciple making as helping people. So the taking hold, I think of my eight month old son, he has some toys that he really loves. And, 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 and as a parent, I mean, he's getting good at grabbing things and I've got a cut on my face where he grabbed my face. Those baby fingernails are like talons. But, he, he, but he, it, sometimes he can't really grab onto things. So I've got to really help him get his little fingers wrapped around those toys. Um, now, Jack, now he's, he's seven and he's been going around with, I know he said he's five. Lord, I hope he's not seven yet. He's five. And he's been going around with a shirt off flexing and he's wanting to lift weights and he's skinny as a rail. But I, I, I try to help him take hold of little weights because he wants to use it and little seven pound dumbbells. And it'll, it will, it'll be different one day whenever he grows up and maybe I'm helping him take hold of, of, a, of more weight or a bigger things or, help, or I'm helping him take hold of something to move. And it looks different. That's what it looks like to help people to walk alongside them, to take hold of the gospel truths. With a new believer, you've got to take such care. And then more and more, they get more able to grasp these gospel truths. And then helping them walk in gospel behaviors is just like helping a baby walk. <laughs> They start rolling over and then you help them take the first few steps. And then before you know it, you're trying to keep up with them. And that's the way it looks like when we're trying to make disciples in the everyday rhythms of our lives. So I just want to leave you, leave you tonight with just three, three action points. You can write them down. They won't be on the screen, but you can write them down. So first, I would say you need to pursue intentional relationships. So for yourself, so first ask the question, has, has anyone helped me take hold of gospel truths? Do I really have a firm grip on what we believe? Uh, has anyone helped me walk in gospel behaviors? Or am I struggling with obeying the commands of Jesus? And maybe you need to pursue an intentional relationship of somebody to pour into you. And, and then you can pursue an intentional relationship where you're pouring into somebody else. Also, the second thing I would urge you to do is to be intentional in your natural relationships. So the everyday rhythms of your life, just take stock of those relationships. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you've got kids at home. Your primary role is to make disciples of those kids. If you're a grandparent, and maybe you pick up your grandson or granddaughter from school a few days a week, your primary responsibility in that role is to help them 
and to help them become a disciple of Jesus. Your work relationships, if you're in in an assisted living home, wherever you are, Jesus has put you there to make disciples. And so you take these frameworks of gospel beliefs and gospel behaviors and you start thinking, okay, how do I help them take hold of the truth of who God is? How do I help them take hold of the truth of who Jesus is? It can be a, a car ride on the way back home from Chick-fil-A talking about the doctrine of God. And just, or, or behaviors, you're helping them obey. If you have kids, teaching them what it looks like to be generous. The, the key point here though in our, of, those, of those things is to be intentional. Uh, Dorothy Sayers is a, a novelist, but also a, was also a key Christian apologist uh, several decades ago. And she said this, she said, it is fatal to imagine It is fatal to imagine that everybody knows quite well what Christianity is and needs only a little encouragement to practice it. Uh, If I'm honest, church, I think we've got a lot of people who have no clue really what Christianity is. And no matter how hard we preach, no matter how frustrated we get, we're not going to know unless we get intentional and simple, frankly. I mean, the things we've talked about, we can dive deep into all these things, but really it's really simple helping people take hold of gospel truths and helping people walk in gospel behaviors. So the last thing I want to encourage you to do is use the beliefs and behaviors we've given you as a framework. You can look back up the notes, you can uh, look back up these sermons and write those down and just be looking at your life through these frameworks as a lens. And just imagine, just imagine what the church can be if every one of us, Sunday morning, Wednesday night church goers or Sunday morning live stream watchers, if we would become disciples who make disciples every day. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we love you. God, your word is powerful. Lord, I feel like we've been flying through this tonight because there's so much. And really, both of these last two sermons could be series all their own where we spend whole sermon just diving into one behavior or one belief and God, I just pray that you would take these things and let them soak in, God, and just use them to move us toward an everyday disciple-making, which is your vision for the church, Jesus. We love you. Amen.